Welcome to Working on Wellbeing, where we share stories of purpose-driven people doing good in the world. We'll meet change agents, entrepreneurs, students, teachers, and big thinkers to learn about their wow moment and how it got them to where they are today. This show is brought to you by Salary Finance, and I'm your host, Anita Ward, cultural anthropologist and chief development officer at Salary Finance. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Working on Wellbeing. I am so excited about today's podcast with Brandon Hatton. He's the author of Conscious Wealth, Money, Investing, and a Financial Awakening for the Person Who Has It All. Now, who puts money, investing, and financial awakening in one title? This is a book you're not going to be able to put down. I promise you, I opened it. Page one, I was captivated. I love personal stories, as all of you know. And in this book, Brandon shares his life experiences. He talks about his journey. He talks about lessons. He went to Egypt and Brazil, and I'm not going to spoil any of it because this is a story worth telling. And and right now, Brandon, he's an investment advisor. So while I'm super excited about his role as a teacher and photographer and everything else, he is an investment advisor, but with a completely different mindset about money and scarcity and wealth. He's a conscious capitalist like me, but this is a leader, everybody committed to the greater good through conscious wealth. And I have been waiting a lifetime to put all of that into one conversation. So Brandon, welcome to the show. I have been looking forward to this all week since you agreed to do it. So I'm really grateful you could join me today. Oh, gosh. Thank you. Thank you. It's great. Thanks for the enthusiasm and the support. Uh, you're up. You're you're in for trouble because the next 30 minutes, I'm not sure I'm going to come down out of the clouds because... <laughs> Bring it on. Let's go. I mean, seriously, when I picked up the book, I was like, oh, this is going to be about money and investing. And, you know, I mean, my mindset was... Okay, wealth advising, conscious capitalism. I get it. You know, this is going to be the same old, same old. It's so different. Halfway through the book, Brandon, I had an epiphany, right? I was ready to change. I loved it so much. So let's see if we can't make everybody else have that same sort of awakening or epiphany today. So uh, first, let's, I mean, let's get the ordinary or, or maybe not the ordinary. Let's get the obvious out of the way. What is conscious wealth? What's this whole thing about scarcity and wealth and the the framework that you're proposing and we can go through the you know four levels of conscious wealth but let's tell everybody first what is it yeah thank you for asking that question first because when you started talking about looking at the book cover like i'm a i'm a poke the bear type of person like if somebody says don't poke that or don't mess with that person then i typically have always done that and so when i was trying to come up with the title for the book i said well gosh nobody likes to talk about money Nobody likes to talk about wealth because nobody's wealthy. You know, if you ask somebody if they're wealthy, they'll say, no, no, the guy with this much more money, 5 million, 10 million, a billion, that person's wealthy. I'm not wealthy. And nobody really wants to claim consciousness either. And the ones that do, I'm a little weary of, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so we got these two words that trigger people. Um, and I was like, well, let's just put it on the same cover and see what happens with this. 
And um, the reaction has been really strong. Um, there's something about this idea that um, wealth, or and we can define it a million different ways, but in the simplest way, money is man-made. There's no doubt about it. There is no animal walking around with dollars, right? Like they don't have it. We've created this. It's the most man-made thing we have. And the only reason it exists is because our minds allow it to exist. And then on the other hand, this idea of consciousness it is the opposite of that, right? It is, it is something other than the world. And it may be to some people, God, it may be organized in a religion, it may be more of a spiritual, but one of the challenges we always have is how do we navigate between these two polarities, between consciousness, otherworldly, and wealth, which is the most worldly thing we have. Um, and that's what the book is, is, is navigating this polarity between these two things, being in the world and not of it, you know. Which is why in so many ways our conversation today is going to continue to come back to social good and what what's the purpose of wealth at the end of the day? And and in some ways, does it even exist? So this will be a bit of a realistic conversation and an existential conversation. So I'm going to start, if it's okay with you, with sort of the realistic, because conscious wealth, what you're talking about in the book, was really informed by your journey. And you and I grew up in the same sort of neck of the woods, if you will. I grew up in Erie, Pennsylvania, I don't know, maybe an hour from you in, in Cleveland, right? And my circumstances were similar um, in some ways, but I grew up a homeless kid and my family, not homeless in the sense that we lived, you know, on the peninsula, but homeless in that we couch surfed among family and friends. So we lived with relatives. We lived with friends. My parents didn't understand anything. I have so many triggers that got set off in this book because those early years really shaped for me what you call money memory. And I'm wondering if maybe you could share a bit of your journey and those same kinds of experiences that led to your money memory, because I think the first lesson you're giving all of us is understand that you have those money memories, acknowledge them, <laughs> and and know that they're there. And your book made me do that. So Maybe talk to people a little bit about your early journey and, you know, what made you think about money memories or what kind of memories do you have from those? Uh, what, what was obvious when I, to me when I was writing the book that money memories were important and it was going to be a big part of the book. What wasn't in the message, what wasn't obvious is that money memories are memories and my memories differ than the rest of my family's. So when this book got published, it brought up a lot of conversation in my family saying, that wasn't true. And, and I said, well, maybe it was or maybe it wasn't. But the purpose is it's what I remember. And, and that's really key. So what we thought about money as a kid, whether I was always afraid of money and had a reason to or not, depression has nothing to do with it. So my, my story growing up is I, I was always afraid of not having enough money. We did always have a roof and we felt secure in that way, but I felt insecure in many ways. And so that was like the scarcity mindset that we had. My, my, my mom had four kids in four years. It's like the, we say the uh, Catholic version of 101 Dalmatians. <laughs> it was my like mom a full the house. Same too. Yeah. My exactly the same, you know, four kids, four years. Yep. Yeah. So it was, you know, dinner time. We raced to the table. You ate as much as you can. I am constantly telling myself now, slow down. 
chew, right? <laughs> and so that's like a simple example, but I did grow up thinking that money was a zero sum game. And through, and that the only way I could make money is if somebody else didn't, or that I had to make, I always had to make more and I couldn't ever let it pass me by an opportunity. And that, that desire to be wealthy or to have money as a kid got me to where I was in life, where I ended up eventually getting it and getting so much of it that I realized, oh, I think I went too far along the spectrum again. I think I went a little bit too far. I mean, uh, I was the person who always wanted it. Now that I got it, I had too much. And I pause there because the question that we get all the time is like, how much is enough? And people always ask, how much is enough money? And it's a it's a very valuable question and it's tough to get to the end of it. But the way that I found it and most people find it is they have too much. When they've got the financial assets, but they're alone or they have a health scare, or maybe they have some family issues, and whether it be a type of divorce or disengagement with family members, we see substance abuse within the family or individuals. And then you know you have too much. And that's a really important moment. Um, it was important for me as I navigate it still to this day is okay. I know what not enough was. I know what too much is. But then where do I want to be at this very moment in regards to that? You you talk about in that very first level of conscious wealth is abundance. And and admittedly, I don't know that I would have expected that to be level one, right? Because I operate in fear. So much of, of what I experienced gave me worthlessness, and your very first question is around this idea of being worthy or not being worthy. And that really hit home for me because those are barriers against abundance in many ways. So, you know, this osmosis of living in lots of places and not having, you know, security in that. I think I grapple with that every day. So, how did you heal your thinking and how does someone create a sense of abundance when in many ways I still live in those fears and, you know, thinking about abundance triggers all kinds of emotions as you go through it. So how, how do, you know, what advice would you give someone about how do you create the sense of, of abundance? How did you do it? How did you heal your thinking? So, yeah. So the, the first level of conscious wealth, this, this embracing abundance is, this knowing that you have enough, um, you can embrace it with your mind. You could write mantras on your mirror. And while I'm shaving every morning, I could say, I'm enough. I'm, I have enough. I have enough. I have enough. Or I could just act like I do. And I can create that type of muscle memory. I'll give you a really easy example, a simple example. And I see it all the time. Let's say you go to Whole Foods and you're going to get a buffet and everything is the same price. Like, I don't know what it is, $10.99 a pound. And you're like, I'd really like egg salad, but geez, those things. $10.99 a pound. <laughs> yeah, like, that's a lot of money. Even though I really want to eat that, I'm going to go over there and grab the whatever, which is clear. I'm just going to grab a whole thing of cashews. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, like stopping there and saying, wait, that's what I want. Who cares what it costs? Or when I'm giving a gratuity to somebody who has, literally served me. I don't need to take out the calculator and get this thing down to a penny. And I can give until it hurts. I can give without counting the cost. And not only does that serve the other individual, but it reinforces my belief that there's more, there's more out there and it'll come to me. 
you have this really interesting formula in the book, and I think it's called how to measure enough or the enough equation, right? Now that I, I think back on it. Could you explain that to people? Because there are pieces in there that, uh, again, I, I think are interesting behavioral pieces that I didn't expect to see when I expected sort of a financial equation that said I've got my assets and you know, minus my expenses and whatever. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> in your case, it's it's so behavior based and, and mental. So can you would you walk us through the enough equation? Sure. So I think it starts with that basic formula that every financial planner can get you. And we've done it a million times. We say, oh, here's how much you've made. This is how much you're going to make. This is how much you're going to spend, your mortgages. We look at all of it. We put it into a system. We run the formula and it says you're funded or you're not. And, you know, by gosh, somebody could be 99% funded. That means the only way we could make them more funded in our system is if we were willing to get sued and say they were 100% successful. Like it's, <laughs> like, there's no doubt there's, they're never going to run out of money. They could, but they're still, they still may have fears around it, right? So that's only one piece of the formula. It doesn't matter how much our mind tells us that we aren't going to run out of money. And like the mind is important because it's important to plan and you want to look for red flags. But the other part is, our sense of abundance, our sense of optimism in, in our ability to make more money. So for instance, I joke, if all of my clients went on a cruise and I missed the plane and it was the Titanic and they all died and I had to start over, I would be heartbroken, <laughs> but it wouldn't be about not having a business. I'd find a way. I know I would. And in many ways, I would enjoy the journey of rebuilding, even if it looked completely different as I rebuilt that building, right? That, that structure. And so it, you have to take into account your ability to do that. Your ability to spend less, to downsize if needed. And I give some examples of um, this idea of rich enough to rent. One of the biggest things I've seen in my business, in my in my career, is the minute somebody has enough money to get a second house, they buy it. And now that may be changing with Airbnb, but it, it has been something where this, and there is so much freedom in throwing somebody back the keys, and whether it be a boat or a house or something, and just uh, your ability to scale your lifestyle and still find joy in it. And then it's divided by your money memory and, and or, or your your expectations. And I don't, I never expected to be in a, such an abundant situation that I am now that I realistically on a day-to-day basis, I don't worry about money. And so for me, anything I have based on where I came from is just over the top. And in many ways, that's the blessing that I have from my upbringing. There's other blessings too, but that's one of the biggest blessings. And I've seen, you know, dollars for donuts, many, many, many financial successful people in this world have gone through that same journey, not having enough, working like all else just to get there and then figuring out it might've been a little bit off. I'm going to have to reset this. And so that, so that, that I kind of got a bit off track with no, that. You didn't. but anyway, <laughs> your current financial situation, plus how much money you spend or can downgrade, and your uh, optimism of the future divided by your expectations. Yeah, I don't think you got off track because that optimism and that confidence piece really comes from a lot of that 
the history that you're carrying forward, right? So in addition to your money memory. So as you were sharing that, I was thinking your dad was a small business owner, right? So how much of that confidence comes from, you know, having watched him, you know, work so hard and run a small, a successful small business? Um, How much does that carry forward into your thinking and your mindset? How did it shape, you know, the way you approach this? Because I think some of that confidence of an entrepreneur is a um, a secret sauce in those who are successful and those who might struggle. I don't under, I can never account. I cannot account for confidence. I don't know how to account for confidence. Um, not to detract from all, all of the uh, good experiences and lessons I've learned from my dad, but I was born with it and it got me to in all, and I've achieved so many things I never thought were even possible or even dreamt was possible without even planning it. And it's one of the reasons I, my confidence gets me in situations where I'm like, oh my God, what did I just start? And then I just, well, I'm in it. I might as well finish it. So it is a blessing and a curse. I can't account for it. And I know people ultimately uh, multiples more uh, competent than me without that confidence. And and I, I can't account for that either. It's a tough one. I think about it a lot. I do too. I, uh, you know, sometimes it comes off as arrogance or brashness, or I am confident to way beyond where I probably should be, <laughs> but it has gotten me in situations and out of situations. And, you know, here I am today, loving and enjoying life. One of the things that you talk about, and I think it's in the abundance piece, I, I'm pretty sure, but it's this idea of rewriting your narrative, rewriting your own story. And I, I will admit that at the Conscious Capitalism Summit this year, I authentically shared that story that I just shared with you about how I was brought up because I hid that. It's embarrassing, right? I, I don't want anybody to know that, you know, sort of ugliness. And I laughed when you said your your brother or your sister, your siblings might recall it slightly differently. Mine do as well. They're like, what the hell are you doing? You know? <laughs> I'm like, I, I was there, I know. Um, but this, this idea that you can rewrite your narrative and you did it through, ed, I'm an anthropologist, so you did it through adventures in Egypt and Brazil. And But um, I was hoping maybe you could share a bit about how did your life changed through these adventures. You know, you worked on cruise ships, you taught in Egypt, you taught wealthy kids or the the children of wealthy, you know, folks in Egypt, but you taught them empathy and compassion. So uh, this whole uh, idea of rewriting your narrative or thinking, I I, I am passionate about teaching, I'm going to go do this. How did you get to that point where you're decided I'm going to, I'm going to write my story. I'm going to figure, you know, figure this out and I'm going to do it through adventures. Or was that strictly accidental because accidental is good too. (laughs) So what I know now, or what I tend to believe is true now is that I went into college with the desire to make a bundle of money because I didn't like not having money. Uh, and I signed up for accounting. Oh my goodness! Because I know, like, what was I thinking? <laughs> Every CFO in my life will kill me, but you're not an accountant. I'm not an accountant. <laughs> I assure you, I am not an accountant. But I signed up for accounting, and I joined a fraternity. 
Oh my God, <laughs> you are a man of contradictions. Yes, I got out of the fraternity and I quit the fraternity and I got out of business. And, and if you would have asked me back then, why are you getting out of business? I would have said, well, I just don't like it. But what I know now about my history, and this is, you know, this is a bit sad, was about the same time that I left business and went into education, So my brother took his life. And so what happened was, as much as I wanted to be in the money game at that time, I wanted to opt out. And so I went into the education and I was, I had a healthy dose of self-righteousness about it. I was like, I'm doing this to help everybody else. And I don't need money and I don't need to give to charity because my life is, is being a servant leader. And I, and, and a lot of that, I mean, all of that was true, but I took it to an extreme but it was me completely opting out of the money scenario. And I did that for seven years. And then I continued to work as um, after that, out, just opting out of money. Um, but what that allowed me to do was to live a lot of different lifestyles in a lot of different places and work as a teacher. And so I, I lived in Egypt and there they didn't call it minimalism. They just called it life, you know, and, 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 sometimes poverty. And I lived in, I lived in Lebanon and I had those, got to see family connections, like where my ancestors were from and see where my great grandfather was born, where my grandfather was born actually. Um, And so all of these types of experiences and interacting with people without the mindset of money, like the United States and with, and oftentimes without the resources of even the common person in the United States, I was given an opportunity to see something very different. And I got to live on the other side of that spectrum of really wanting money and not having any and not wanting any and not having any. And um, it, I mean, it was really interesting. I remember we used to sit around and wonder, would I rather be poor in the United States or Brazil? Now in Brazil, they live in the slums that are called favelas and they're, they're run by, oftentimes run by drug lords and there's sewage running down the street, but they have fun. They have community. They have a sense of safety when they're in their own neighborhood. Um, they can go to the neighbor's house and ask for rice. They know everybody who works there. And, you know, and there was no answer, but it was a study of expectations and what poverty means in one country and another. And, you know, in Lebanon, they don't have nursing homes. At least when I was there, which was a while ago, they didn't have nursing homes. And so, yeah, they don't have the, the, the financial assets to put their family in a home, but they don't also don't have that drive that we do. And they have a healthy respect for their, for their elders. And so, and I don't know, I didn't know at the time I was doing it, but it was a beautiful and, and graceful study in, in, in money in different cultures. So on the back of a tragedy like your brother, did you find the sort of passion and purpose through teaching or was this just a, this all opened your mind to another way of life? Was this your first time you'd actually been traveling and and mixing it up in other cultures and countries? Oh, no, I mean, I love teaching. I love teaching so much that I'm opening um, an education endeavor now. I'm opening a school now. I'm passionate about teaching. It's probably that what I love most about my work is teaching my teammates, teaching my clients. And so um, there was a lot of passion there. I took it to the extreme. And the problem with taking it to the extreme was I burned out in seven years. But that's what you do when you're 20. They do that. 
That's what you do. <laughs> yeah, I was an idealist. They say, uh, I still do. Yeah, I used to say like, a perfectionist wants you. To, a perfectionist. If I were a perfectionist, I just always want to be perfect. But I was an idealist, and I wanted everyone else to be perfect too. And it, it was hard. Yeah. So, per- so I mean, that's that. That moves us straight into purpose, right? Because that's your second level of conscious wealth. And when when I was reading the book, I found myself stopping and I don't stop easily branded, right? I mean, literally stopping, rereading, thinking, I might've cussed you a couple of times <laughs> <laughs> Nice, because of the, you know, I mean, you're making me think and I laughed, I cried. I mean, but there was one point on page 80, it is dog eared and it's where you talk about Siddhartha and you talk about how, you know, there was this realization that life as he knew it was done that I wish I could quote it properly or open book, but basically he said he had tasted all of that existence as he knew it and it sucked everything out of it and he was disgusted or something. I've just paraphrased it. That's it. it sucked, sucked everything out of it until he was disgusted with it. Mm-hmm. It made me pause and think so hard about purpose uh, and what it is because you know, purpose is also one of those things when you talk to people about we're a social purpose company and they say, define that. (laughs) So purpose to some people is almost like this wishy-washy thing. And more than anything, I felt like I knew, I knew that time that you were describing with that Siddhartha passage. And I wondered what made you pull that one in particular and, you know, dive a little bit deeper on did you come to that realization as well that that life as you knew it, you had sucked it out until it disgusted you and you knew you needed to pivot? Um, I've come to that realization a couple of times. Multiple times, me too. <laughs> <laughs> that time was the first time I really did. I mean, I had started traveling. Um, I started working on cruise ships when I was a junior in university, in college. And then seven days after graduation, I worked on cruise ships and then I traveled um, all the way up until 34 years old. So I lived overseas for that whole time. Um, And I was sitting in a Starbucks in Avenida Paulista, which would be like the Wall Street kind of uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil, and um, drinking a coffee and reading Siddhartha. And I don't even know how I got this book. And I read that passage and I was kind of going through this phase where I just didn't know what I wanted to do next. Um, I was, I was, I was no longer a teacher. I started working as a photographer. I was no longer working as a photographer. I was working as a tutor, but as an SAT tutor, SAT tutor, which is, you know, it's not the most rewarding work. Um, and I came across that and I said, you know what, this phase is over. Like this phase is over. The reason it's in that chapter, this idea, this book is about, uh, it's, it's kind of like alchemy taking money and transforming it into something besides lifestyle, right? If you talk to people, they say money should be transformed into lifestyle. And I agree with that because that's that you, you we, need, we want these types of uh, conveniences, but there is, and there, on the spectrum is between conveniences and things that provide us purpose or enrichments and enhancements. You can get off whack. You can get a little too far. Like your life can be, if, if you don't have any conveniences when you spoke of that, it's really hard to find purpose. It takes a really strong per- person to, to, to really have a sense of purpose. 
And if you have all conveniences, you might not have room for purpose if you're always just trying to make your life easier. And so many times in my life, I've had to recalibrate my spending and because every day I'm transforming money into lifestyle because that's how money works in our society. But say recalibrating it to say, no, I'm going to have to transform it into purpose. And, and when I, and, and it is a hard word to define. It's a really hard word to define. And because primarily because we use our mind to define purpose and uh, our mind is not a nice person all the time. And, and so, and, and it can tell you, it can, it can lie to you or it, it can, it can give you unclear messages. And so what, what I encourage, what I do is when I'm trying to find my purpose, I'm listening to and checking in with my body and saying, when I'm at this four hour dinner, sitting down with all of these courses, do I feel alive? And I say that in a way that you're going to know the answer. For me, it's no. Other people, it could be. It could be their total passion. For the chef, they have purpose by designing that. But to me, I don't like to sit for four hours and get coursed out this meal and just like my hips start to lock up. So, But there went a lot of money. So I transformed money into an experience that may not be providing me the purpose that I want. I have to, so recalibrating, how do I feel? I just, right before this call, I just rode all around town on my bike for an hour. I feel alive. I feel great. It really didn't cost me any money. I already bought this bike 10 years ago. Um, so it's it's like transforming my time in this case, which is money, right? Into purpose, because I know that activity makes me feel alive. So in absence of being able to find purpose, which is so darn hard, how do I feel connected to myself and to others? Yeah, you, there, there's something that really struck me in, in the uh, conversation around this, where you said that you moved from, I have enough, which is the abundance to, I am enough, which is aligned with the purpose. And so that, that mindset shift or the, the, the alchemy, if you will, that you just described of putting those two together of, I have enough and I am enough is really what I've now started to embrace as, you know, that, that mantra coming out of the book. But there's a piece in there, Brandon, that, um, I don't know that, you know, Steve Barha, but he's in it. He's from Atlanta. He's the founder of a company called instant financials. And I, um, he and I are friends. We did the podcast together as well, but he talks about how he ruptured his retina, I think, and um, he was without sight. So, and he had this incredible experience of what was it like to be in darkness for an extended period of time. And I know that, and he had epiphanies. He actually started Instant Financial. He had an epiphany about it while he was living in darkness for weeks. But you also had something a bit similar in that you couldn't speak. So you lived in silence. And I think there are epiphanies to be found in the absence of light and sound. And I was hoping maybe you could share with everybody the story that I read about how the visit to the dentist was this sort of pivot point in your life. We know in nature that when you create something, something else is destroyed. It's a law of nature. It's, it's irrefutable. And so if we have wealth creation, there is a form of destruction along the way. In my case, it was destruction of my health, my relationship with myself, my relationship with my friends, my family, 
I was working 14 hours a day, um, five days a week, and then still putting in some hours on Saturdays and sometimes Sunday, um, because I was just so driven to get this thing done, to, to build this career, to get this client base. And, and so then a, a, along the way, I, I really beat up my body a lot. And so it, when I went to the dentist, you know, the dentist saw an irregularity on my, in my mouth and said, we're going to need to do a biopsy and we're going to need to, you know, if you've ever done any type of procedure, you always have to have a friend and then friend has to take you there and take you home. And, you know, and I was, yeah, no problem. And I, and I get back in my car and I'm, I'm not even worried that I might have cancer because I was so on top of the world. I had, I had achieved all these things that I wanted to. I had all of these forms of um, success. So I said, that wasn't it. I think what shook me to my core was, oh, wow, like I don't, I don't really have anyone to take me to the hospital for a day. I'm going through my phone. Nope, can't ask them. Nope, can't ask them. And it was a very lonely time, but it was also a wonderful opportunity for tra- internal transformation. And so when I went back to the office, you know, nobody knew that this was happening in my life because I was working in a very traditional firm, which um, was, we'll just say it wasn't a caring and loving place. <laughs> and so it was, you know, what you, it, it's what you might imagine some financial What do you mean, Brandon? Uncaring financial services, that's an oxymoron. <laughs> <laughs> But nobody knew this was going on with my life. And so I just sat there and I was quiet and I couldn't talk and no, nobody really asked. And I could just do that, you know, that guy nod if they did, you know, like, yeah. hey, you know, like, just, so, Yo, bro. you know, and I just, I, and you're, you're reevaluating your life and then you're looking around at the people you're working with. And, and honestly, I was pretty disgusted with what I saw in the industry at the time um, and some of the practices that I saw. I mean, I remember one of the young bucks came in with a Rolex and he was showing it off to everybody. And one of the senior partners turned the corner and said to the other senior partner, now we got him, boys. And and the the implication was, oh, this person's stuck working here because he just bought, you know, a 27-year-old just bought a $10,000 Rolex or whatever it was. Um, And I knew I didn't want to be in there, but luckily luckily for me, I didn't jump and pull a parachute. I stayed in it. I watched, I listened, and I found a way to kind of transform and, and, and carve out my own niche uh, in the industry that is meaningful to me. And and um, and I know my clients too. Yeah. It's meaningful for them as well. So that, that silence in many ways gave way to this new world that you've created and had you start thinking about the third level, which is impact, um, maybe one of my favorites. But admittedly, Brandon, you had me at Jerry Maguire, my favorite movie. (laughs) Good, good. I use that quote, we are losing our battle with all that is personal and real about our business. I mean, that is a manifesto for all of us, right? So why do you think impact is so fundamental to conscious wealth? So what impacts the so transforming money into impact or time into impact? Um, one, it's important to know what your money is doing on your behalf when you're not watching it. Where is it? What's it invested in? Um, and there's no perfect solutions, but there are better solutions. And there are solutions that are aligned to your family. 
But moreover, just the exercise which I th- of a family sitting down and saying, hey, this is what we believe in. And our money that we're not currently spending is only going to support this to the best of our ability. Uh, money is a beautiful platform for determining what a family cares about and then putting it into the world. So that, that's one reason why it's important. But not everybody in the family can have an impact with money at all given times. And of course, we know not everybody in life can. So using our work as a vehicle for positive impact or reforming our industries, being part of the reform in your industry, whatever part that is, is also important and is accessible to everyone. Unlike some of the stuff in this book, admittedly, is not accessible to everybody. Well, I also think though those three principles that you use for investing around transparency and confidence and is it predictability? I mean, I think those are important whether you're investing or living, right? Know what you own, <laughs> know why you own it, know your numbers. I mean, you can take those same principles and just about implant them in other places. So I think the advice around transparency and impact holds true whether you're an investment and wealth advisor or you're a teacher in many ways. The part that intrigues me so much and I find so fascinating is the fourth level of consciousness around unity because I didn't know what that meant. And so I walked into this fourth section going, what is unity? And how did you arrive at this place of unity? So I was hoping that we could get a little, um, a little outside of the box and maybe talk about non-dualistic thinking and is I really we? And you know, how does that inform philanthropy and strategy and even ESG frameworks that we all tout as business people these days? So could we, could we talk about unity, and uh, which may not come quite as natural to those of us in financial services, because now you're asking us to go uh, in a very different direction? for this part of the conversation. Sure. So to recap, like the first step within this journey, I'm going from rich to moving towards this conscious wealth is to say, I have enough, right? And, and it doesn't mean that I don't ever need to work again, but it's just, I have enough now and I will have enough. I will be provided for it. And, and, and the next step is I am enough. Like I'm worthy of spending money on my own purpose because if I invest in my own purpose, it will help others. But then as we move to the third and fourth level, you it becomes more questions than declarative statements. And so instead of declaring, um, I have enough, you say, do I have anything at all? Is it really mine? And because we can't take it with us, we know that it's a fact. And so if I can't take it with us, if I can't take it with me, is it really mine? And if it's not, then what is my responsibility? What is a custodian way of investing for impact? Um, and then when we move towards the fourth, which is in unity, is, is like you start to question not just do I have enough, but is there an I? And so one of the things that many of our, our clients really struggle with, and I'd say everybody struggles with, or not everybody, but a lot of people struggle with is like, how much do I give my kids? When I, because I'm not going to spend all this in my lifetime. I, I, I'd like to. And everybody says they want to bounce their last quarter, you know, bounce their last check, you know, or swallow their last quarter. But many of them don't. And, 
And so how much is enough to give my kids? And because you want your kids to, they're your kids, so you'd want them to be able to be successful, but you might not want them to have too much. And then if it's not your kids, and, and if you accept that to be the truth, that maybe they shouldn't receive everything, what about a kid you've never met before? And how is that really different from your own? And how can we expand our thinking to, if this isn't mine, and it isn't necessarily only my, my families, then how can I use this money to unify others, unify me with them? And so by me admitting that this isn't mine, and that maybe there is no, there's less barriers between me and someone I've never met on the other side of the earth, and not just saying it and meditating it, but putting my money where that is, is a step in that direction. It's an aspirational level, but it's it's worth, I mean, it's obviously, it's clearly it's something I believe in inspiring to. Yeah, it's really shifted my thinking. And admittedly, I can't resolve it yet. So I continue to think and question around it. The, the fundamental question being, can I really be successful if everybody around me isn't? And so I continue to think through, what does this mean? You know, I'm so committed to the Woodruff Arts Center, but and giving to the arts is important to me. But even with all of this, I'm like, okay, there is a social return. All these people exist and succeed, but you know, is there an economic return as well as a sort? I mean, I think about everything within this context now, Brandon. So it, it has definitely made an impact on this notion of um, what did you say? Spiritual beings living a human for existence. I forget who the quote was, um, but then if that's the case, then are we just caretakers of wealth? In which case, you know, how does? Can I give you anything? Can I give anything away if I don't really own it? And <laughs> it is, it's like that Skittles commercial where the brain gets popped and the juice flows everywhere. <laughs> That's how my head is as I think through this whole notion of unity. And I believe that, you know, to my core that this is right. It's sort of next level thinking. So thank you for that, first of all, because it's been a long time since I've really thought about money uh, in a in a very different fashion. So I'm still not sure I have totally figured out this last part around unity, <laughs> but I can tell you I'm going to be calling you with like questions all the time. But I do have, you know, one question about it is if conscious wealth, if you put all of this together in all four levels, if it's a path, is there a destination and is that destination tied back to unity? Is there a destination and is it tied back to unity? Well, I think so. There's one group of people that has too much money. It's non-debatable. Do you know what group that is, Anita? No, I have no idea. Dead people. (laughs) 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 So, (laughs) So dead people definitively have too much money. Like, we know that. And so, so when we die... I believe that we are united with some force and that that is the end goal. Um, And so working along these, these spectrums or these polarities between abundance and scarcity and all the way through unity and disunity, we're looking to approximate it within our lives. 
this is not a book to find enlightenment um, because I, I, I wouldn't know how to write that, but it is a book about approximating more light. And so I think that is, is the purpose. Um, just like everything in life that is made by man, mankind, humans, everything that's made is made to, it, 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 its purpose is to make us more loving. Right. There's nothing or is, is I see it as the purpose of everything is to make us more loving, to make us more unified, make us more whole, make us more integral. Um, and so money is an opportunity to do that. And otherwise, why are we making it? Um, you know, why are we making it? And, and it can have other other impacts to have fun, but then it's still fun creates this ability for me to be more loving, to be more kind, to be more generous. So I think it is, that is the destination. So thanks for helping me kind of work through that. Uh, I'd love to keep that conversation going. Tell me what's energizing you now. You said you're working on an academy or a school. Did I hear you correctly a minute ago? Really, really excited about that. So we're taking, I'm taking the book and turning it into four, a four module course and it is a teach the teacher type of course. So we are teaching um, chapters within Conscious Capitalism and working with some companies to teach these leaders um, how to go back to their families and have discussions around some of these pain points around these four levels. Um, the pain point, of course, in the first one is um, there's still sometimes a lot of fear in families around money. There's a lot of scarcity, even though they have it. And so how do they do the work themselves and then bring that to their family to have discussions? So I'm really excited about doing that. Yeah. I can't wait. Where can people find out more about it and where can they buy your book? And, you know, let's give them a little bit of detail too. Yeah. So the book is on my website, which would be Brandon Hatton, H-A-T-T-O-N.com. And the course is not, the course will be up there soon. It's still in beta uh, beta stage, but it'll be up there soon. I'm so excited about it. And my email and all that stuff. Yeah. And we'll make sure to have that as well. Um, As people listen to this, they'll be able to access it. I have a couple of favorite leaders. Um, I have to save stories for later. I mean, one of them is Seth Godin, a dear, lovely friend of mine who thinks incredibly out of the box and you remind me so much of him in the in the way you address this in the same way that he addresses marketing and and storytelling so one I'm super grateful for that and uh, but another one is Jack Ma and he talks about LQ so he says there's EQ IQ and LQ and LQ being the love quotient and and what you talk about is you know gratitude and love in business are unique concepts, but um, I want to share my love and gratitude with you for being so generous today with your time, but importantly with your authenticity, because I, if, if we can come to terms with this, I believe that we can close a lot of those divides that exist and, and we can get to unity as idealistic as I am. Um, but if you'll allow me, I, I want to share that I've learned so many lessons through the book and I've become so introspective about myself, but there's a piece of it you have uh, where you talk about investing and I've turned it into sort of my life mantra. So I'm going to share it with everybody. Those of you who know me will just laugh, but here's how it goes. 
My task in living is not to avoid risk. Nothing will achieve that for me, thank goodness, because without risk is certainty, and certainty is boring, (laughs) and certainty doesn't allow for growth. So, Brandon, you have very much touched my life, so I thank you for your mantra, I thank you for sharing your story, I thank you for your time today, and, you know, I thank you for the spiritual being you are living this human existence with me, so... Uh, you can always count on me to be supportive and everybody. I highly encourage you to read this book. It is life changing. So thank you for being with us today. Thanks. I feel very embraced by you. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of working on Wellbeing, brought to you by salary finance. I'm Anita Ward. At Salary Finance, our mission is to improve the financial health of working Americans by providing access to socially responsible financial products in the workplace. You can learn more about how you can partner with us to help improve your employees' financial well-being at salaryfinance.com. Don't forget to subscribe or follow so you don't miss an episode.